Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. Hi, I'm Claire Massoud, and I'm a fiction writer. Hi, I'm James Wood, and I'm a literary critic. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. While walking the dogs, as it were, we're just chatting about the mechanics of fiction, and, and we're very fortunate in that regard to have had that perpetual conversation since going since we first met. Part of the deal is figuring out what you like and getting lots of it. And part of it is also figuring out what else is out there and whether there are, there are things that you might say, overall, this isn't for me, but I still want to steal this little thing. I still, right. I still admire this part of it. I'm Helen Molesworth, your host for this season. Every episode features a conversation with artists, curators, writers, designers, philosophers, filmmakers, and musicians about what it means to make things today. Hey, everybody. You might have caught the first couple of episodes in my interview series with creative couples. So far, we've had the artists Lori Simmons and Carol Dunham, and the artist Hank Willis Thomas, who's married to the curator Rujeko Hockley. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you this episode with two writers, the wonderful novelist Claire Massoud and her partner of many decades, the literary critic for The New Yorker, James Wood. I hope you enjoy it. So I've long been fascinated by creative couples, people in couples in which both people are at work in the world in some kind of way that I assume is also happening in their private lives, public lives. You know, these are these are things that interest me. So the first and easiest question of the interview is how long have the two of you been together as a couple? We met um in the first the, the very i can't remember if it was the end of september um or the very first day of october um in 1987 when i went to study to do graduate work at cambridge university and james was there we were both at jesus college cambridge i can say that it memorably the um the Night of our first kiss was the what we call the night of the high wind, which um, was the hurricane in October 1987, which Derek German writes about in his book and W.G. Sebald writes about in Rings of Saturn. And um, it was when Seven Oaks became one oak and a fisherman was killed by a flying beach hut. And um, as we like to say, the earth moved. Are, is your kiss memorialized in the Sebald? I forget that detail. <laughs> Not our kiss, just the storm, just the storm. But, you know, that'll do. So what's the year now? How long has it been? Um, That's uh, uh, 35 and a bit. Is that right? No. Can't be that long. Uh, well, if it is, it doesn't feel that long. Oh, so that's good. Good save, James. Good save. <laughs> One thing it does mean is that you've spent more of your lives together than you have apart. This is, is true. Correct? I think it's 36. Yeah, 36. Wow. Two writers in one household. 
most artists I know who operate at the professional level that the two of you operate have studios, and often their studios are separate from the house. The studio is a very sacrosanct place in the art world. How do you guys arrange yourselves spatially to do the writing? Hmm. Well, speaking for myself, I'd say that I've never really needed a dedicated space as such, and that's because I came up through journalism and remain at heart a literary journalist. And so over the years, sure, I've used a room or two in our house, but I've also, you know, finished pieces wherever and wherever anyone would finish a piece in a airport or a hotel room or when when the kids were young, you know, if you had an hour or two um, and someone, someone, either Claire was looking after the kids or like, or the other way around, we'd pop out to, you know, a coffee shop or something. So I, I feel fairly flexible in that regard. And I hope to keep it that way um, because that seems um, an essential component of the thin border between sort of the edge of a, of a, of a literary piece and, and the world itself, which is how I like it. Mm, it's nice. How about you, Claire? Do fiction, does fiction writing have other demands? About seven or eight years ago, we renovated the Falling Down Garage to make it a, a study. There is a space that is is a sort of writing space, and my most recent novel, which will come out in May, was largely written there. It was also the place in the pandemic that we zoomed from, so um, so you know it has the advantage of being quiet. But but you know I, I'm quite particular about the I write by hand when I'm writing fiction, and I particular about the notebook and I'm particular about pen, but this, the space, as long as I have quiet is not as important. I, you know, I can write in different spaces. Again, I, I, to me, it seems that thing of you know, the, the portability of a notebook uh, and a pen, it seems to me the key thing for me too. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen Claire over the years writing. I mean, she does need silence. I guess most people need silence, but but although not everyone needs that's not true. A lot of people actually work to to music, and 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 I I think I I don't know if I could, but anyway, I've seen over the years Claire writing all over the house actually with a you know in various places with just a, a pad on her knee. If she's got a pad on her knee and a pen, it's it, it's incredible actually. She can she can write. James, I you know I think about you as a critic. Claire, I think about you as a fiction writer, even though you yourself have also, Claire, written um, pieces of criticism. And it seems to me that the temporality of these two forms of writing is really different. Criticism that has a deadline, James, you've alluded to this already somewhat. Mm. And fiction, what seems so awesomely scary about fiction is the void, the 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 way that once you start making something up, it could really just do whatever it does in that kind of Dickensian way. It could just multiply and multiply what... So I'm curious, as the two of you live together in a couple, how you navigate those very different temporalities that your work demands of you. I find the world of deadlines awful but useful, and I doubt that I would get half as much written if I didn't have them. 
along with the financial imperative, um, and that's important. Um, I I both like and am frustrated by the pre-made form of the review, right? I mean, it, it's it's obviously useful because you you have some idea of what you're going to say. You have a space, three, four thousand words, whatever it is, uh, and a whole mechanism uh, of adjudication, and you know, an editor will see it. But it could also mean that you have the odd experience of feeling that your is somehow spilling over the bounds of the form. That 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 it's not just that it's not just the practical thing of you you have more to say and you were sorry that the piece was only 4,000 words and not 6,000 words. It's actually that stylistically, um, there's a way you might want to express yourself that, that can't really announce itself. And, and I think in case of writing for the New Yorker, that's quite true because there's a, you know, it, it's a sort of large readership and there are, there are certain house style things, uh, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, um, it wouldn't be probably acceptable for me to spend the first 2,000 words of a review talking generally about the case without introducing the book under review, that kind of thing. So it's um, it's both a, a, a goad and a, and a limitation. Have you ever felt a kind of, mm, I mean, envy might be too strong a word, but something on the spectrum of envy about Claire's capacity then to write, quote, freely, to... to to use the words and sentences and preambles that she needs to, the openness of the fiction form. Absolutely. The, the uh, terrific envy for that. And also for her, um, it's something I, I have really struggled with in, in pieces of fiction I've written or even in the memoir that I'm working on. Um, she has um, an extraordinary... Um, an extraordinarily good architectonic sense of form. I think she she seems to know how she's going to proceed, where it's going to end, even if in the course of the journey she doesn't know, it, of course, every twist and turn. And sometimes I think that's really the sign of the of the natural novelist, as someone who can keep in her head the entire form of the. I mean, I often sort of think of. Tolstoy writing War and Peace, right? At, at a certain point, if you've written 400 pages, 500 pages, you can't, as it were, do that old writer's thing of getting up in the morning, going to the desk and rereading everything you've, you've written to sort right. of have, have it all in your head. And um, she can really, I really envy that because that's not, it's just like a quality of map reading that she has that I just don't have at all. Mm. Claire, what about you? What about that? the temporality of fiction writing versus criticism in in the criticism i've written i i haven't tended to write long pieces of the sort that james does so uh i i find i find it quite satisfying to you know when when you have somebody says 1200 words that's what you got and you know and you can do it and then it's done as opposed of course to 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 any book length project which is is of indeterminate, as you know, you know, is it months, is it years, is it, and you're just at it, um, you're sort of rowing across the channel, uh, hoping that you'll see land eventually. But, but at the same time, as you also say, the, the, the freedoms of that are, are, are real. And I think the, the freedom to, 
to, even if you don't go back over the whole thing, to go back over, you know, you have to eventually go, revision is that, you have to go over the whole thing. But even as you're going, if you think, I think back, I'm not happy with, you know, chapter three, and you can pause and go back and rewrite chapter three entirely. I think that there's, you know, that's a sort of addictive uh, delight. And, um, and uh, you, you know, to, to, to be the constraints of, 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 it has its own constraints. You're writing, you're writing in service of the, of the book, of the project. Everything has to be determined in function of that. You, you can't just write any old thing, you know? And, and of course, the further you go, the, the more d distinct and committed the choices are you, but it, to be in service of a, of a, of a literary project is, is different than being in service of a newspaper deadline. So. That thing, it was interesting what Claire was saying about that addictive delight. I think that's absolutely true. It's a danger, though, isn't it? I mean, we all know people who haven't been able to let go of things, and so they haven't produced much, right? We all, there are sort of, you know, undiscovered geniuses among us who you think, if only that person could finish the book. Journalism, at least, has the great merit of, of forcing you to let go, or you, or you won't live, right? It's as simple as that. You have to... The, the magazine that I used to work for 10 years ago, there was a writer who used to say about, he'd finish a piece and he would say, well, it has the quality of doneness, right? It's, I don't know how good it is, but it's done. Um, and sort of letting go is, is, thank God, I mean, in a way that I can write short forms and let them go. I don't know quite what it would be like to be, I've never written something as long, say, as the novel, Claire's imminent novel, which is 400 and 40 pages or something. I mean, I don't know what it would be like to be in that world. And there would be always potentially, at least for me, the danger of not being able to let it go because you'd always be addictively revising and revising and revising. That quality of Claire being in another world while she writes this 400 some odd page novel that comes out in May, I heard somewhere, and maybe one of you will recognize the quote, I can't remember who said it, but it's something like, the, the, the enemy of the writer is other people, right? Like, that, that other people's language, other people talking, other people's needs, you know, that, that there is something about writing that demands a quality of solitariness, and I wonder, one, if the two of you both require this aloneness, this solitariness, and if you do, how have you been able to manage it in the space of both your coupledom and your family life? To be honest, I, I, I'm rather afraid of that aloneness. Um, I don't know that I enjoy it very much. I know exactly, Claire often says about writing, <clears throat> that it's it's the only thing she knows, and I, I I know I understand what she means. It's the only thing that she knows where you can sort of put your head down, start working, and then look up, and two and a half hours have gone by as if it was two and a half minutes. And I do know something of that, but but I actually find I think ideally I would. I mean, you know, Samuel Johnson used to. Um, 
back in the 18th century would sort of write in London. He liked actually writing in London in a room full of people. And then he'd sort of, the, the, the copy boy would be waiting to take the manuscript and he'd hand it to the, to the, to the young lad who would run off to the printers with it. Um, there's something to me quite attractive actually about writing in the midst of noise and busyness, as it were, at, at, at the airport. At, at times I've written in Starbucks, you know, I mean, so I, I think what it's a type of silence that doesn't have to be literal. It has to be above all, not that there is no intrusion. Mm. Um, that for me, certainly our, our kids are grown up now, but when they were small, they really needed not to be in the house or at least not conscious, at the very least not conscious. I mean, to have them two rooms away was not sufficient. Uh, I, either I had to go mm. out, uh, hence writing at Starbucks, uh, or or they had to go out. I, I think that sense that somebody might need you at any time that the that the that the concentration might be broken at any time that's really that's really for me uh the the key in terms of other voices it's interesting i know i know people who and i don't know helen if it's true of you i know people who won't read anything while they're writing um and 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 that isn't true of me i don't think at this stage in part because i'm a if you will reading is it essential you know, reading is my is is an essential. Some people go jogging. I read. So, <laughs> so you know, if if you said to me, oh, for the next six months you you won't be allowed to read a book, that or the next year, that would be uh, that would be untenable. Right. I found there's something poignant about James, what you said about you know Claire being in this other mm. world for 440 pages, however long it took her to make and construct that other world, that the couple is a world, and then there's this other world that's happening. Mm. And I guess I'm curious about how you were able to let each other be in those other worlds, or how you navigate the membrane between the world that is your coupledom and your family life, and the worlds that you're creating when you're writing. I think, I think that's a very shrewd question, because that sort of... Um, commitment and as you say commitment to otherness commitment to to being elsewhere is a is a kind of threat to the here and now world that the couple creates domestically um and i think you sort of animalistically you sense that i think animalistically we sensed that when we were younger we don't it's easier now um with 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 the with kids two kids growing pretty much grown up and and out of the house but i think when we were younger we actually did fall into we only we only discovered it afterwards but we'd so we'd fallen into a rhythm for a few years of of alternation where when claire was writing was working on a book i would sort of i would not be trying to work on anything too 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 engrossing and then once her labor was finished i would then sort of take it's that thing of what you can take from a relationship as your as and demand as your as your own is the real threat. Yeah, I sort of think of it in terms of psychic energy in the house, and yeah. and that if somebody's world is really big, the, their imaginary world is really big. It's actually taking up a lot of psychic room, mm. and 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 that the other person shouldn't be trying. Then I'm thinking, do, do you remember that? There's the Tintin one with those giant mushrooms that get bigger and bigger. <laughs> I don't know if you, you can't. You don't want to grow mm -hmm. your mushroom, um, your internal mushroom, as it were, um, when when someone else's is at its right. peak. 
for many years, um, James would often write all night, mm. you know, um, when mm. the, when the kids were growing up, <clears throat> you would write your pieces, yeah. um, as it were under cover of darkness and literally not sleep. Um, because that was the time when, when that sort of psychic energy, you know, was available, um, for, in a sort of shorter span. And, and you do that less now. Um, yeah, it was a bad habit I got into partly because of coming over from the UK to America, but still writing for the guardian back home. Um, if I finished a piece around four or five in the morning, a short piece, that would be perfect. It would arrive in London at 10 a.m. for them to get on with it. Um, and I never got out of that habit. Um, I, I have a remnant of it still, which is that I try not to write it uh, in the middle of the night. It's, I can't really do it anymore. But I, I, the remnant I have still is that probably the most serious reading I do is in bed when everything's quiet at sort of one in the morning. Then mm. I can really get... I can really get going. This isn't a practical way of living, but it's how, it's how I sort things out. Well, Back in 2007, when I was working on a, a critical book about, about fiction called How Fiction Works, kids were small and obviously around us the whole time. Uh, and then there was teaching and all that. Um, and the form of the book was going to be, in my mind, was going to be a sort of a, a longish chapter um, on on one element of fictional technique, so character, plot, um, style, metaphor, whatever. Um, and then I realized I just didn't have the I didn't have the space and time to think of a sort of ten thousand word chapter, you know, stolidly working through each. Um, and the book ended up, unsurprisingly, um, being written in numbered paragraphs. Um, and that's great. I mean, we, we've right. all discovered that sort of thing. Like you, you can do a paragraph in the evening, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. I too have written well, a number of paragraphs. Paragraph. <laughs> I've, I've, I've probably more than yeah. I'd like to count. They also enable you to contradict yourself, which is great. So I recently interviewed the filmmaker Ira Sachs and Ira name-checked Claire hmm. in the interview. And he said that he was measuring himself against the great filmmakers. And he said, you know, so I thought I would always fail. And that Claire had apparently said to him sometime, I believe when you were undergraduates together, that Claire said, well, why, why fail? Why not try to be great? Like, why, why not shoot for the stars and try to be as good as the person you're obsessed with? to be as good as one of the greats. And so I guess I wanted to ask you both, um, first, who are the greats you are writing toward? I started reading Virginia Woolf's essays when I was about 17, I think. It was before I went to university. And it was the same time that I was also reading yeah. a lot of book reviews. I was reading George Orwell's essays because I was growing up in the north of England and he'd written about coal mining, basically. It was as simple as that. But but from there, I got onto literary pieces by him and Wool. And that enabled me, I think, when, once I got to university, it gave me a crucial context because it made me understand. I mean, the, neither Orwell nor Wool went to university. And it made me understand that however professionalized criticism 
was became in the university or had become in the university and whatever training I was being given as a as a close reader, et cetera, et cetera. There was this other larger literary critical tradition that that surrounded and and preempted the university study. And that went back, you know, I mentioned Samuel Johnson, it went back in into the eighteenth century, the nineteenth century to Quincy and Matthew Arnold and all that sort of stuff. But I would say Wolf for me and maybe a critic not read so much now, but partly because he wrote for a long time for The New Yorker, um, and that would be Edmund Wilson, because he wrote a very accessible mm. but extremely scholarly historical criticism. I mean, his book To the Finland Station is still an amazing compacting of all the reading he'd done around the revolutionary and socialist, socialist tradition from Michelet to, to Trotsky. Phenomenal book, really, and doesn't have any footnotes. It's an amazing. It doesn't have any footnotes. But there he is reading in several languages and and putting this together in, what, 1940 uh, as a as a beautiful, continuous story for a common reader. What an amazing project. And I, I think still worth trying to hold on to, even though all the forces are against one in some way, or being able to achieve that anymore. Mm. Claire, how about you? Who are you writing? I do think a fiction writer, I mean, maybe all writers, uh, you're a sort of magpie and you're, and you're emulating this bit and stealing that bit. And funnily enough, Wolf is a, a big piece of it for me too. I've written about this in a personal essay or two. I had a mother who was an avid reader and I think must have had a subscription to the Virago book. I didn't know I was reading at 13 what would be the women's studies uh, curriculum, Elizabeth mm -hmm. Bowen and Elizabeth Taylor and Muriel Spark and Sylvia Townsend Warner and Breyer and HD and Jean Reese, Jean Reese and yeah. Catherine Mansfield and this a whole lot of sort of 20th century, probably largely British, some American, Christina Stead. You know, there were all these authors who were very important. And I was just writing a piece about Wolf essays, and it became clear to me how much her modernist conception of literature, I mean, it isn't just Wolf, obviously, you know, Proust and Joyce and going back a little further, Flaubert, but, but, and Dostoevsky and, and the Russians, all of these, some combination, I think, for me of of interiority and storytelling, right? So when I think, when I say Joyce, I mean Dubliners rather than Finnegan's Wake, you right. know, yes, Ulysses, but, but above all Dubliners for me. And I think that's a, a sort of, that's about the, the almost kid-like reader in my heart, you know, that, hmm. that loves a story mm -hmm. and loves people. Yeah. So one of you writes criticism about the kind of thing that the other one of you writes. And I'm curious how you guys handle that. And I know some people say in their acknowledgments, you know, so-and-so, my lover, is my first reader. Yeah. Well, I guess we are actually our first readers. There's a more figurative way of thinking of it, which is, I think, more true to the flow, which is, yes, Claire does read bits, you know, page or two out to me that she's been working on, and I will read, you know, this memoir I'm currently working on, I'll, I'll sort of say, you know, I've got, I thought I did reasonable paragraph here. I want you to hear it. But in fact, I think that, that, that sort of reading each other and thinking about fiction goes on just in sort of a perpetual conversation we're having about, about books that we're reading. Um, so, you know, I'll be mm. reading a new novel and it's a new novel that Claire's also read in galley form. And I'll say, you know, so sure about that this this 
triptych approach that the author has taken with three three small novellas in one book. It doesn't seem to me to work. And suddenly we're just, you know, while walking the dogs, as it were, we're just chatting about the mechanics of fiction. And, and we're very fortunate in that regard to have had that perpetual conversation since going since we first met, I think. Yeah, and I and and I think our tastes are different. Uh, you know, when we first met, and James was a great admirer of Saul Bellow's work, and I I was you know formally an admirer of Saul Bellow's work, but but if you gave me a sort of shelf of books to choose from, what I wanted to take to bed, Saul Bellow was not going to be the first book I was going to pick up. You know, one of the things about those a lifetime of those sorts of conversations is that you come to appreciate and learn about things that aren't necessarily you're your immediately attracted to or what you immediately might pick up. I teach creative writing. I'm always trying to say to the students, like, part of the deal is figuring out what you like and getting lots of it. And part of it is also figuring out what else is out mm. there and whether there, there are things that you might say, overall, this isn't for me, but I still want to steal this little thing. Or I still right. I still admire this part of it. Mm. Or that thing that we all know, which is, I can hugely admire this and also feel that it's alien, but I can appreciate it and I can understand what other people see in it. To have that sort of the rounded understanding of, of, of one's sensibility involves challenging it too. Do you seek the approbation of the critic or your fellow writer? Like what matters more? I think when I was younger, I hoped for critical approbation. At this point... I'm much more aware that any one person is one person, whether they're another writer or 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 indeed a or a critic. And so I what I would say, I'm a lot less worried about the world. Mm. Or you could say I'm a lot more mistrustful mm. of the world. And I I feel you can, you know, as we all know, you can have wonderful reviews and positive reviews, just as you can have negative ones. You know, positive reviews and you think you read the review and you think, Wow, is that the book I wrote? I I really didn't I didn't know that was the book I wrote. And you can have a quite um, critical review and think, oh, this person didn't think I managed it, but they really saw what I was trying to do. It is the funny thing about criticism. Sometimes the positive review is one of the more deflating yes. things. But I think that's the thing about, you know, isn't it a mercy that we don't stay 23 forever, you know, is that is right. is that we can come to sort of just take it for what it is, you know. Right. And be grateful that somebody thought well of something, even if you feel like, wow, that's, wow, okay. Yeah. I'm curious what role you think feminism has played in your couple. So I might leap in and say that I grew up in a very traditional family. My, my father went out to work and my mother um, did not. And my mother was a great reader and a very thoughtful person. And she had at various times a job in a bookstore or volunteering at the library, but but she did not have a career to her dismay. I mean, it's a long story, not for today. I grew up really believing if you want to be a writer, you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't have children. The one thing you would need is a wife, <laughs> you know. I got one of those. The writing is still hard. <laughs> the joke in graduate school was you don't have anything that needs to be fed, watered, or walked. Not even a plant, you know, just just trying to make the right. space. And and I think whether my subconscious somehow identified a, a person who was raised in a non-traditional, as James will say in his in his household, his father did many, many things like all the cooking and, you know, and a lot of the childcare and mm. 
as well as being able to do electrical wiring, carpentry, um, being mm. a zoologist and eventually a minister, a priest. So when the kids were small, I would have conversations. I mean, I think one of the things about kids is every parent feels like I'm doing 75% the whole time. But in fact, when I spoke to other parents, particularly other women, our household really, we were splitting things. And in that sense, it, it wasn't a contract we wrote out. It wasn't something that we officially said. And yet I would say feminism played a big part. Yeah. No, I mean, the only thing I'd add is, of course, we were super fortunate and privileged in so far as we both, in the end, were able to work out the terms of our employment. I mean, we were both working at home and we, I mean, how would our lives have been different if instead of me being a critic, I had a job that took me out to the office every day in a very conventional way? Would we have then found ourselves, particularly when kids came along, replicating a kind of conventionality that we did not want to <laughs> replicate, but willy-nilly we were forced into it? We never had to 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 run that experiment, thank goodness. Yeah, as Claire was saying, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate enough to, I just had a, in some ways a very odd and wonderful father who, though he was born in 1928, didn't seem to have any preconceptions about about gender roles and domestic roles. And hmm. and so as Claire was hmm. saying, he sort of, my mum just wasn't interested in cooking, so he did all the cooking. My mum didn't drive, so he did all the driving. But he was also much a much better seamstress than my mum, so he took up my trousers and sewed my name tapes on for school and all that sort of stuff. And um, just was a very practical uh, person. That was great mm. because I didn't really, I didn't go into married life thinking um, that not to be domestically competent uh, was unmanly, actually. Yeah. Mm, that's mm. really beautiful. All right. My last question is 36, 35 years of living together, writing together, loving one another, making a family. What has surprised you each the most? about the other over time? That's a great that's question. A, that's a, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't have an immediate answer. I mean, I, my, my immediate answer overall would be what's about life. What surprised me is how easy it's felt um, to, do, to be together for so long. If you'd mm. said to me, mm. if you'd said to me when I was, we met uh, on the eve of my 21st, Worth it. I mean, if you said, and and you'll be in your late fifties, you know, still hanging out with that guy. P part of me would have believed it because a friend came to visit, you know, the next day for my birthday, and she saw a picture of James, and she said, "Who's that guy?" I said, "I met that guy last night. I want to marry that guy." So, you know, part of me maybe knew, but I wouldn't really have believed it. But but I think both in the in the work and in life, I would say. Um, I'm repeatedly surprised in the happiest way I feel so fortunate by the generosity and wisdom and kindness. Is that about me? Yes. Oh, of the nice. person that... Um, well, I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, I mean, I, I'm not sure that at 22, James was the most generous critic. Yeah. I think that's an evolution, mm -hmm. um, a growing up that has happened over these many, low these many years. I can have a bad temper, which James does not, um, and mm. and I can 
um, get cross about things that people say or do. And James is much more likely to ask the questions, why? Um, why would that happen? Mm. Why would somebody react that way? Why would somebody do that? Both as a critic, I think, and 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 as a human being. And that's a, it seems to me, a gift for me to be in company with. Yeah. Mm. And I, I mean, the only thing I'd add to that is, is, Claire said so eloquently the, the the human thing of how strange it is actually to to have in 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 one way wondrously strange to have been together for so long, but more abstractly I'd say one might not have expected early on the combination of critic and writer to have combined and been compatible. Right? There's a sort of lying lying down with the lamb aspect to it, which you would think, okay, it's gonna that's gonna be a problem. And it really hasn't. In some way, I feel that we're we're both in our temperaments enough of co combinations of fiction writers and critics together and internally within each other that actually that's been a, a surprisingly wonderful compatibility between us. You guys, thank you so much for being so open and Generous and gracious. This has been wonderful. Thank you so Thank much. Such a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. If you like this episode, please follow, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It really does help the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you join us here next time. <laughs>